Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners. Some people may find the contents of today's episode disturbing or upsetting. If you do, there is help available. In the UK, call Samaritans on double one six one two three. In the US, call the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline number, which is nine double eight. And for, you know, listeners in Australia can call Lifeline on one three one 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 four. Do call these numbers if you need support. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Jonathan Herring about his latest book, The Right to be Protected from Committing Suicide. It was published by Hart in 2022. Jonathan is a professor of law at the University of Oxford. I will let you tell, um, I will let him tell you all about himself and um, when we speak to him today. Um, so Jonathan Herring, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me to be here. It's it's great to be talked to you. It's wonderful to have you. I'm wonderful to have you back, I should say. Um, now, just to get us going, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to write The Right to be Protected from Committing Suicide? Right. Well, I'm a, a professor of law at the law faculty at Oxford University, um, and I work in medical law and ethics and family law and criminal law. Um, but a lot of my work is on uh, issues around uh, intimate relationships, people's uh, private lives, um, and I'm particularly interested around issues around care and issues around autonomy. And I, I think um, uh, those draw me drew me intellectually uh, to the issue of suicide. But perhaps more importantly, um, personal experience of, of friends where this issue has been a very direct issue. Um, I think led me to realise that actually this is this topic of suicide is hugely important uh, and one that really hasn't received uh, as much academic attention as it should, especially from lawyers. Um, and so I wanted to look again at at the whole area of suicide and what the correct legal response ought to be. Right, and it's really interesting. It's a very interesting book about you know a very topical and pertinent. Um, concern that's really important. Um, in introducing the book, you wrote you write that debates surrounding the right to die have become dominated by discussions about suicide and end-of-life concerns, as opposed to, say, protection from suicide. Yet you argue that there should be a right to be protected from suicide, which rests on two key sorry, it rests on two key grounds. Firstly, being the right to health and life. And secondly, because suicide is commonly the result of socioeconomic inequalities. Now, Jonathan, can you elaborate on these points a little bit? Uh, Yes, certainly. So perhaps to start with, uh, it struck me when I set my students reading for uh, issues around death and dying, uh, how often the focus is on really quite a narrow band of cases involving end-of-life issues. Uh, particularly people who have got terminal illnesses or uh, severe disabilities or something like that. Um, And what particularly struck me is I started one tutorial by saying to students, if a patient went to see their doctor and said they were feeling suicidal, um, what do you think the law ought to uh, allow the doctor to do? Um, And uh, they all replied, oh, the doctor should uh, um, uh, be able to help them commit suicide uh, if that's what the patient wants. Um, But when I said to them, do you think that's what the college nurse uh, should do if a student goes to see her concerned about suicidal feelings? Of course, they immediately said, oh, no, no, I I assumed you were talking about someone who was terminally ill. Um, And it really brought home how the debates have been focused on uh, that particular band of cases where people perhaps towards the end of their life uh, are seeking to, to, to hasten death. Um, And that was overlooking what were, in fact, the vast majority of of suicides. Um, 
And you're right, the, the title of the book seen, seeks to present this as a very particular issue, as, as an issue around which the state has a particular responsibility. Uh, that suicide's often presented as a private choice that an individual might make for themselves. Um, but it overlooks the response of the community, uh, the responsibility of the community for playing a part in creating suicidal feelings and also the duty on society to seek to offer help and support for people who are uh, feeling suicidal. So if someone is saying um, they uh, wish to end their lives, rather than our response or our primary response being, how can we help you do that? It rather should be, what can we do to uh, help you deal with the issues you're facing? How can we change your mind? Um, What support can we offer you? Uh, that all our initial efforts should be to try and prevent suicide taking place rather than enabling it. That's really interesting. I just want to go back for a moment. You just talked about how, you know, the sort of of end-of-life cases which do tend to dominate the media, um, they are not the majority of suicides. Can you tell me a little bit about more sort of the suicides that you write a lot about in this book um, and the sort of how this sort of intersects with the responsibility of the community and the duty to help prevent against suicide. Yes, if if we look at the primary groups of people who do actually commit suicide, it's not very elderly people. It's not people with severe disabilities. Um, The largest group are middle-aged men, uh, particularly men whose partners have left them or who have lost their jobs. There are also very high rates of suicide, tragically, amongst students and young people. Uh, and amongst those who are on benefits or facing uh, severe financial difficulty. Um, So these are cases that uh, are not captured by the court cases, those cases students will be familiar with of Pretty and Purdy and Nicklinson and all of those cases, which are the sort of very dramatic ones that uh, appear before judges. Uh, These are often really tragic cases which are the result of Uh, pressures from society, perhaps expectations around masculinity, uh, uh, poverty, a failure to address social uh, exclusion, uh, challenges to mental health where there's a severe lack of um, provision of support and help within uh, the NHS and wider services. Um, And all of those really important issues tend to get neglected and I sometimes wish that the all the intellectual efforts uh, that have been put into the fascinating and complex debates around uh, the right to die in uh, cases of terminal illness had, had also been put into seeking to find uh, ways of preventing suicide and of finding legal mechanisms to protect people from suicide. Now, it is a sort of very difficult topic, I think, to write about and speak about. Um, So I'm interested to know, what were some of the challenges you found in writing this book? Well, certainly there were personal challenges, I think. As you said, it's it's challenging material. It can be overwhelming to read. And certainly um, I was reading quite a few um, accounts of people's suicide and notes that people had left. And I just felt when I was writing, I needed to care for myself. And so I often would limit very much the amount of time I spent on this particular book and try not to spend more than perhaps a couple of uh, uh, hours a, a day specifically on this because I think otherwise it it could be overwhelming and, and being alert to the impact um, of uh, studying this field. Thank you um, for that. So I want to turn to the sort of substantive part of the book um, and the, in the second chapter you sort of talk about some of the contested definitions of suicide So can you tell me whether or not there is a settled definition of suicide and how we can understand it in this sense? Um, So you're right. One of the difficulties is there's not one clear definition of suicide. And it's difficult, for example, to to gather statistics on suicide. Um, So one obvious source that you might turn to would be coroner's findings that an individual has committed suicide. Um, but certainly coroners are certainly have been historically under a lot of pressure not to find a suicide, uh, a finding of suicide. 
uh, unless they're absolutely sure that was uh, what uh, occurred at the death, uh, particularly where the family uh, are reluctant to accept a suicide took place. Um, and so there's a lot of pressure perhaps to record a death as an accidental death of some kind rather than uh, a suicide. Um, there are other cases where it's simply unclear, for example, if somebody had a car crash, whether that was in any sense a deliberate attempt to end their lives uh, or was, was simply an accident. So looking at the more sort of formal definitions, I suppose the issues where there's most debate are, first of all, to what extent someone has to intend to commit suicide or whether uh, just taking a risk that, might one that a person might die might be included within suicide. There are also debates as to whether or not uh, it requires a positive action or whether there are senses in which omissions, for example, failing to feed yourself properly or failing to take necessary medication uh, may be regarded as suicide. Um, so there's, there's certainly no one definition that can be, uh, that can be used. Um, and uh, it, that, that makes um, the issue complex, but I think it, it rightly recognises the complexity, that there's not necessarily a hard and fast line um, between uh, these different categories of cases. And did you find that this sort of lack of coherence in defining suicide posed any issues in the research, or do you think it sort of leaves the door open for, say, further research? I think with the, with the particular angle I was looking at and the, the state's duty to protect people from suicide, um, the exact definition mattered much less. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, part of my argument for the state's duty is that uh, there's the right to life. Um, and so and the, the state having a duty to, to protect uh, life. Uh, and that would be true whether or not uh, it's a case of suicide or a case of something that's not quite suicide. Um, so certainly for the issues I was looking at in, in relation to the, the book, the, the slight fuzziness over the definition wasn't uh, a major problem. And then so turning to the next chapter, which is on the causes of suicide, it relates to what you've just been talking about. There are different causative theories of suicide put forward um, and I think some of these relate to your arguments, but I'm wondering just for some context, can you elaborate a bit on these causative theories? Yes, yeah, so certainly it's, it's, it's fascinating, I think, how through history suicide has been treated in different ways and the cause of suicide uh, has been uh, uh, explained. Um, so, of course, traditionally, it was very much a sort of moralistic lens that was used. And I suppose through uh, religious belief, suicide was seen as, as a sin. Uh, it was described as self-murder. Uh, it was a, a sin against God. It was a sign of moral weakness in some sense. Um, and then uh, gradually developing out of that, I suppose a more modern understanding would be to see suicide in terms of a mental health uh, explanation, uh, that someone has been uh, severely troubled by mental ill health and suicide is a manifestation uh, of a mental illness. Um, but I think, uh, as I highlight in the book, the societal forces uh, are becoming more and more recognised. And I think we can see that uh, societal forms of discrimination and disadvantage are strongly related in the suicide statistics. So higher rates of suicide amongst those on welfare benefits, amongst those in the LGBT community, um, reflecting not... Uh, uh, out of proportion to those just based on any kind of mental illness explanation. Um, but it's the way that we structure society, the way that supports are offered to some groups of people, uh, but are not offered to others. Uh, the way society reinforces negative messages towards certain groups, which magnifies suicidal feelings. Um, and all of those combine, I think, to see suicide as a societal problem. Uh, as much as an individual problem. Um, I'm wondering then, because the next chapter is called Societal Responsibility for Suicide, and especially from the point of view of causation, suicide is often attributed to an individual. So it's seen as, you know, 
a problem within the individual to be um, treated in isolation. But, you know, the sort of drive behind your book, one of the key takeaways, is this idea of societal responsibility. So I'm wondering if you can elaborate now, Jonathan, in what ways can or should causation, do you think, be attributed to society? So I think, um, although the two topics are, are very different and raise different issues, there's quite an interesting analogy here with domestic abuse. So domestic abuse used to be seen very much as a sort of individual problem, a, a reflection of uh, an abuser's bad personality or their mental illness or their abuse of alcohol. Uh, and it was seen as, if you like, a personal private problem. Um, and the legal responses were primarily designed at trying to help victims of domestic abuse uh, receive interventions that they would need. Um, but in relation to domestic abuse, we've gradually come to see that the uh, abuse within uh, relationships is a reflection of much wider societal forces, patriarchy, if you like. And that uh, the law itself has played a role uh, in enabling domestic abuse uh, to sustain the kind of attitudes that are reflected and expressed in domestic abuse. Um, and I'm trying to make a, a similar kind of argument in relation to suicide, uh, that rather than seeing it uh, as an individual's cry for help or uh, as uh, an individual's mental illness, um, that we should acknowledge, too, the way that society uh, increases and reinforces suicidal feelings in certain groups, uh, that society has uh, mental health resources available to some, um, but deny them uh, to others or make their services inaccessible to others. Um, and I think that acknowledgement that suicide is, is all of our problems, is a societal communal problem, not just a reflection of an indiv troubled individual uh, is at the heart of this book. And I think once it's accepted that the state and our society is playing a contributory factor, potentially a very important causative factor, then the claim it's the responsibility of the state to try and protect people from suicide becomes all the stronger. I'm wondering then if you can comment on, you know, if we do take this new approach um, or sort of, you know, shift our lens of analysis or our view where we understand suicide as being something that's reinforced um, or uh, sort of increased by pressures and structures in society, then sort of what are the next steps in terms of addressing suicide and especially thinking about it, you know, as a right to be protected from suicide? Right. So I think there the state has then the burden to uh, do what it can to prevent suicide and i suppose there's three levels that we can think of that uh, sorry think of that at first of all um at a sort of general level uh, in relation to the whole population uh, and there's lots of evidence of how things like gun control access to medication uh what's putting gas supplies uh, putting in barriers uh, at high places can have extraordinarily dramatic impacts upon suicide rates. Um, so as is well known, uh, looking at the United States, their levels of suicide are extraordinarily high, particularly in those states where there is access to guns uh, and where gun controls are put in place. There are dramatic falls in relation to uh, guns, uh, to, to, to suicides. Um, and similarly, sim simple things like putting in barriers on suicide hotspots can uh, have quite notable impacts upon the rates of suicide. So actually, there's some really quite simple things that can be done uh, uh, at a very general level. Secondly, I think there's more interventions targeted at particular groups. Um, so where we can identify groups of the population who are uh, susceptible to suicide, who find it difficult to access uh, suicide uh, prevention uh, assistance, then there's an obligation on the states to take steps to make those resources more easily available. Um, so uh, we know, for example, members of the LGBT community often find it difficult to access those services 
students are often at heightened time of stress and face uh, suicidal feelings. And so making sure there are adequate protections for them. Um, and thirdly, then there is the individual level. So where the state is aware that a particular individual is feeling suicidal, taking steps uh, to uh, protect uh, and uh, assist them. Um, now, of course, that's uh, difficult. Uh, there might be limits as to what the state can do in all three of those areas. Um, the claim is simply the state is required to take reasonable steps. Of course, there'll be cases when the state is unaware that someone is feeling suicidal. There may be resource issues which simply make it impossible to provide all the facilities that we want. Um, but I think there can be no doubt that the current mental health provision uh, in the NHS in the UK, for example, is woefully uh, inadequate to the need. Uh, we know uh, there are waiting times of well over a year for teenagers with severe mental health issues awaiting access to CAMS. Um, and if anything, it's even worse in relation to adults. And so I think taking risks seriously, uh, it being a breach of human rights where the state could have taken reasonable steps to offer assistance to people feeling suicidal and failed, failed to do so, would be an important uh, move for the law to make uh, to recognise this is uh, a human rights issue and that there's a duty on the state to provide these services. Yeah, I mean... As you say, I do think perhaps it is difficult, but that's not really an excuse, I wouldn't mm. say necessarily, in these cases when, you know, we're talking about the right to life. It's not the abrogation of any, just any right. But Absolutely. And I think it's too easily just dismissed, oh, it's this person's choice, um, or perhaps there's nothing we could have done to help them. Well, I think neither of those should should work as excuses for not doing what the state can. And of course, there are going to be some suicides that can't be prevented. There's some suicides with all the provision in the world will will still take place. But that's that's no reason for why, when we can, we shouldn't be doing absolutely everything we could. Yeah, I think that's a good takeaway that, you know, do what we can when we can, um, rather that's than... Good. Yeah. Um, I want to connect this now a little bit to some of your other research. So you've previously written about law and the relation of... Sorry, I can't speak today. Law and the relational self. Um, we actually did an interview about it. So listeners, you can have a look for another interview with Jonathan Herring and we spoke about his previous book, Law and the Relational Self. Um, but I'm just, in. you write about suicide here, you talk about the relational self here in relation to suicide and again in the context of vulnerability and care theories. So how do these theories help us reconceptualise and think about the right to be protected from suicide? So I think often the law assumes that people are self-sufficient, uh, are have uh, have capacity, uh, are independent, um, and rights are put in place that are designed to sort of keep people away. So rights of autonomy, rights of privacy, rights of self-determination uh, are often used to say, you know, keep away from me, leave leave me to myself. That this is my business. Um, and there's a major challenge to that kind of understanding of the self within the relational literature, um, often based on the idea that, in fact, that we're all inherently vulnerable. Uh, we all, at a very deep level, need each other for support and help. Uh, we need each other for emotional sustenance um, and we need each other for physical help and emotional help. Um, and uh, that means that the idea that we can just see my life as mine or your life as yours as a sort of independent entity uh, is a fiction. Uh, we need all uh, to recognise we're all interconnected, we're all interdependent upon others. Um, and I think that uh, throws two lights, I think, on, our, uh, on the issue, which is the subject of this book. Uh, first of all, that we can't just dismiss a suicide as well, one person's choice. It's, it's, it's their private decision and it doesn't uh, impact upon the, the rest of us, that their decision will have been impacted upon everyone else. But the second, I think, is that it helps explain why social exclusion and loneliness 
are such major issues in our society and I think are so often connected to feelings of uh, suicide. Um, it shows why it's so important uh, methods of social integration, of including uh, everyone in society and combating social exclusion are key, not just for the well-being of society generally, but as a way of combating suicide. And then turning to the next chapter, which is on the idea of ethics and suicide, can you tell me about some of the ethical debates surrounding suicide? Yeah, so I suppose there's two main uh, topics here. The, the first really surrounds the idea of capacity uh, and the idea of autonomy. Um, and so this is for many people is the key issue. Uh, and the argument goes that you should be allowed to decide uh, what you want for your life, that you should fashion the journey of your life, the story of the good life for you. Um, and other people should then respect that. They might disagree with what you've decided for yourself, um, but they should respect your decision um, because you should be author of your own life. And that then often means in relation to suicide, people arguing, well, if someone has reached the decision that they want to commit suicide, then we should respect that decision. It's their choice. Um, now, my exploration of this argument in the book, I suggest that, in fact, a proper, detailed, careful analysis of autonomy would suggest that very few suicides should be seen as richly autonomous in that sense. Um, so we know many suicides are momentary decisions where someone has simply received some bad news. They've suddenly been sacked from their job. Their partner has left them and they'll rush off uh, to commit suicide. Uh, now, those kinds of cases might be an autonomous wish at a particular moment in time, but they're very thinly autonomous. Uh, they're not carefully thought through based on values that someone holds dear to themselves and has chosen to live by. Um, and we can see, for example, from the fact how few people uh, attempt suicide a second time if they're not successful. Um, often people assume that suicide... Uh, suicides are sort of repeated attempts, but actually that's quite rare. The vast majority of people will attempt suicide once, but then not again. And I think that indicates that it was a, a momentary wish that they had. Uh, but it certainly shouldn't be seen as some sort of deep autonomous wish of theirs, that it actually uh, is inconsistent with their life. Um, and we see that too with uh, cases of people uh, suffering severe depression. So uh, one of the leading uh, cases, the Rabone decision involves a woman who, uh, it seems from the court report, was generally very happy in life, but would suffer moments of intense depression when she would feel suicidal. But again, her suicidal feelings there were not autonomous and reflecting her genuine wish. She was always very grateful for uh, help that she received to uh, deal with her suicidal feelings. Um, so um, I think there's lots of ways that a, an exploration of whether somebody might say, I want to die, uh, but to, to explore more deeply, what, what are their real deep desires? Is this actually a decision that they have reflected on, um, that is reflecting values they hold dear? Um, now, I'm, I'm willing to accept that there are some cases where that would be true. Um, I, I think Tony Nicholson would be an example of someone who uh, was, had thought through the issues very, very carefully, was very familiar with his condition um, and had reached uh, a clearly uh, capacitous decision. But many, many suicides are, are not of that nature. Uh, they're spontaneous. Uh, they uh, reflect uh, an emergency of the moment. Um, and therefore, they don't deserve that kind of uh, rich protection uh, of autonomy. Yeah, it's an interesting idea, the idea that, you know, this sort of hands-off, um, non-interventionist conception of autonomy, that we pick out one particular decision for respect, mm -hmm. notwithstanding it may be inconsistent with a person's long-held values. Right. Yeah, um, and yeah, sorry. So, 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 and, and, and particularly to acknowledge then, if, if someone might have a, a very weakly autonomous decision to die and, and we allow them then to kill themselves, that's that not supporting autonomy. They're, they're not actually ending up where they would really like to be. 
they're not actually um, um, they're not actually exercising autonomy, and it, it, it's always sort of counter autonomy to be respecting their immediate desire. Um, so it, it, it's it's disrespectful of autonomy to uh, follow a decision which is someone has made, which is merely reflecting a momentary desire, one they will come later to very much regret. And I want to bring this back to a point you mentioned a moment ago relating to capacity, um, because you said, I think, that you know not all um, decisions are sort of of equal um, value, worthy of equal sort of respect and, you know, cap- the person's capacity to, under, say, understand the implications of what is about to happen or the capacity in the moment may be compromised. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about capacity and how this sort of interplays with um, autonomy and the right to be protected from suicide? Right. Um, so I think one of the, one of the one of the issues that's that's inevitably raised is, as you've indicated, that capacity really sort of comes on a scale. Uh, that uh, what we need to be fully autonomous in a sort of rich sense is to be aware of all of the facts that are relevant to our decision. Uh, to have values that we have carefully thought through and have adopted as our own. Uh, to apply those values to the factual situation that we're in, uh, in a rational way, to be able to reach our decision. Um, But that's a very sort of high expectation. That's the sort of ideal autonomy people should have. Uh, The legal test for capacity tends to be much, much lower, uh, that someone simply has to understand the basic facts that they need to have some sort of values they're loosely applying to the decision that they are reaching. Um, so the legal test for capacity is often much, much lower than we might ideally want for full autonomy. Um, but I think we need to recognise that the level of capacity uh, that we need depends upon the severity of the decision that we're reaching. Um, so it's one thing to have a test for capacity to decide what flavour yoghurts you'd like to have for your tea. Uh, it's another to make a decision that, for example, would end your life. Um, and it'd be entirely appropriate. And I think the law should have uh, the very highest levels of uh, autonomous wish. Um, so if we look, for example, someone who is suffering from a deep depression and perhaps they think they're worthless and they're useless and their their life has has no value. Um, well, these those are not values that they have normally endorsed for themselves. They're not values that they've chosen and adopted as a person might uh, adopt uh, veganism or a religion for themselves. This is uh, a belief they feel sort of disconnected from because they feel their life has lost its value. So there might be an example of of someone who hasn't really got the kind of values uh, that they can uh, apply to reach a richly autonomous decision. Um, Or maybe they're simply feeling overwhelmed by pressures. uh, And again, not in a position to weigh up and apply their values they want to live by to the decision. So many uh, attempted suicides uh, explain their attempt to commit suicide as an attempt to escape from Uh, an overwhelming pressure, a horrible situation they were facing. Um, And those are not really autonomous decisions in the sense that they're wanting some new vision of uh, the good life that they're wanting to make. It's not like someone who's decided to move country to a new country and start a new life or something like that. It's something, a decision just to avoid something. Um, And so I think a lot of those things that we might value about autonomy uh, are not there in many, many suicide cases. Now, again, I think there are a few where that would be true, where you could see somebody as regarding uh, their death as uh, an appropriate next stage for their life. But those are very few. It's not how most uh, suicidal people express or see themselves. So I want to turn back now to, it's the next chapter in the book, but um, it's also something that you mentioned a while ago. You talked about the intersection of human rights and suicide. So what rights are animated with regards to suicide? Right. Um, So first of all, um, there's the right to life, which is uh, Article 2. Now, 
that's, of course, always understood to mean that the state must not kill people, <laughs> uh, that that would clearly breach Article 2. Um, but particularly in relation to uh, domestic abuse, as I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the recognition now is that the state not only must not kill people, but also must protect people from being killed by other people. Um, now I think that argument applies just as well where someone is uh, a threat to themselves, uh, that their Article 2 right uh, is engaged. Uh, and so I'd use Article 2. I'd also uh, use, uh, in particular, Article 8, uh, and the right to respect for private life, which reflects um, autonomy. Um, and it's the point I was making earlier that, in fact, uh, although it might seem counterintuitive, often suicide prevention is enhancing autonomy. People are extremely grateful that they have been uh, protected, uh, that they are able now to live out the vision of the good life that they wanted to because they have received protection from suicide, they've received appropriate treatment and intervention, and that actually allowing them to commit suicide would undermine their autonomy as understood in a, a, a rich way. Um, and finally, I think I'd, I'd bring in uh, Article 14, which protects the right from discrimination. Uh, and that highlights some of the points I was making earlier, that the failure of the state to provide services to those who are feeling suicidal means that often suicide operates in a discriminatory way uh, against disadvantaged groups. Um, there are sort of different interpretations in international law in terms of human rights and suicide. I'm interested because you did write a little bit about this in the book. Um, what would the UN uh, Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, what do you think it would say about all of this? Right. Um, that's a good question. And it's, a, it's a more contentious yeah. uh, question. And certainly there are a division of views amongst those who are looking at the UNCRPD. Um, so one school of thought, I think, would argue that we shouldn't discriminate against people with disabilities, including mental disabilities, that we should respect the autonomous decisions uh, that they make just as much as the decisions as anyone else has made. Um, and they might be particularly concerned that suicide prevention uh, interventions particularly tend to target people with uh, mental health issues uh, and so might rob them of the autonomy uh, that is allowed to people who, who do not. Um, I would use the CMPRD in a different way uh, and highlight the fact that disabled people should have equal access to health uh, the access to health that everyone else has. Uh, and yet, particularly in the area of mental health, uh, we are woefully failing to treat mental health issues as severely as we do physical uh, disadvantages uh, and illnesses. Um, and there is still the kinds of waiting lists for mental health interventions that we would never put up with in relation to cancer or mm heart problems uh, and so forth uh, and there's still uh, a great discrimination against people with mental health issues not receiving the help that they need. Yeah I mean that's an interesting point if you sort of um, start with a lens of analysis of thinking about the right to health and it's in article 24 of the UNCRPD and think about what the state should actually do to support a person's health and especially their mental health then perhaps the whole debate surrounding autonomy and respect for um, decision-making capacity becomes a little bit different. Yeah yeah I think that's right and I think that's it's Again, I think the, 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 there's all sorts of negative attitudes about mental health issues that um, it, it, it's seen as a source of shame. It's seen as uh, emerging of um, mental health with questions around autonomy, um, whereas people can have mental health issues but still perfectly have autonomy. Um, but also, I think, um, an idea that perhaps mental health issues can't be dealt with properly or perhaps a person's own fault they've just got to pull themselves together all of those negative kind of attitudes uh, can feed into to failing to to treat them seriously 
And so then turning to the existing legal frameworks that do currently operate, can you tell me a little bit about these and the sort of limits in their ability to protect from suicide? Right. So in relation to uh, the human rights angle, which is what I I particularly focus on, uh, there is a limited acknowledgement that the state has a duty to protect people from suicide. Um, But that tends to be uh, very much limited to those who are in the control of the state or under the care of the state. Um, So the Rabone case I mentioned earlier, where uh, a woman was in uh, a hospital voluntarily, um, the court did accept that there was a duty to protect her from suicide, but that uh, was because she was within the care of uh, a state hospital. Uh, and similar, similarly, uh, duties of care have been found in relation to those in prison, for example. Um, but there's a great reluctance to extend uh, that scope. Um, now, I think, in fact, uh, that reluctance may be uh, a slight misunderstanding of the case law. Uh, and so part of the book is a slightly technical analysis of whether the reason why the state uh, uh, isn't under a duty to protect those who are not within the direct care of the state from suicide falls under the question of the duty of care or the, the duty to protect, or whether it's a matter of what's reasonable on the state. Um, and I argue that should be seen as a matter of the reasonableness. So in other words, the state does owe a duty to protect everyone from committing suicide. Uh, if someone is in the care of the state, it's obviously much easier for the state to do so. And if someone is outside the direct care of the state, it's more likely the court might find there was nothing reasonable the state could have done. But I think it's better to analyse it that way than to say that the state doesn't owe a duty uh, to protect people uh, generally. And then, so what role does the criminal law in protection from suicide play? Um, Well, there's a number of uh, features. First of all, the uh, uh, offence of assisting and encouraging uh, suicide. Um, Now, of course, that when people think of that offence, they often think of a relative taking someone perhaps to Switzerland so they can have assisted dying. And, and technically, that would be regarded as uh, assisted suicide, although that wouldn't be, be prosecuted. Um, but that offence is also very helpful in some other rather disturbing kinds of cases where people are forced into committing suicide or bullied into committing suicide. And I cover a few of those in the book. Um, and I think it's right that we do have an offence. Uh, so there's one horrific case I describe with a young man with learning difficulties who was taunted and teased and, and bullied into committing suicide. And it was quite right that that was seen as uh, a serious criminal offence. Um, the other part of the criminal law, which actually is, is I think, particularly helpful, is, is the decriminalisation of suicide, uh, that suicide itself or attempted suicide is no longer a criminal offence. Um, and that must be right. The last thing that someone who has uh, attempted to commit suicide needs is to face a criminal prosecution. Uh, they clearly need whatever support uh, can be provided. And so I think it's helpful there that the criminal law uh, backs away from suicide. Um, and the sort of next part you write about is you look at, take a UK sort of lens and you look at the Mental Health Act and also the Mental Capacity Act, but you write that these only actually apply in very specific circumstances and not in many cases where a person does not have some sort of mental disorder. So then my question is, how could the law be reformed and sort of taking a step back from this Um, I'm interested to know as to whether or not mental health interventions actually work in terms of protection against suicide. Yes, I think the the main tool that tends to be used in cases of suicide is the Mental Health Act, where a person Mm -hmm. can be detained to protect themselves. uh, But that is only in cases of mental, uh, if they have a mental disorder. I think there are two main issues there. the first, I think, is that it's much disputed as the extent to which compulsory detention is actually uh, effective uh, and what form of intervention uh, uh, is 
uh, helpful. Um, so I think it shouldn't be assumed that when we're talking about suicide prevention, we're necessarily meaning someone being locked up against their will. Um, I think we need to be, uh, and, and many doctors working in this area are, seeking to find all sorts of alternative ways uh, of intervention. Uh, and there's certainly been a move recently towards much more cooperative forms of intervention, trying to involve uh, the patient in a collaborative uh, uh, interaction with the medical team, rather than it sort of being a, a highly paternalistic form of intervention. Um, so I think there's got, got to be uh, ongoing work on finding the most effective forms of intervention uh, and certainly moving away from a model that necessarily uh, is a sort of almost punitive uh, detention being the, the primary response. But I think secondly, we need to move beyond uh, limiting this to cases of a mental disorder. And so I was mentioning earlier cases of, uh, for example, where someone is suddenly overcome because they've lost their job or uh, a student may be overwhelmed with exam pressure. Uh, and that uh, there does need to be forms of, of intervention which might have to involve a degree of coercion, but should be available without, um, uh, even if there isn't a case of mental disorder. Yeah, because if a person didn't have a mental disorder, they wouldn't fall under any of the acts. So. That's right. Yeah. No, um, and then no intervention could, could, could easily be made. If they had capacity uh, and they didn't have a mental disorder, uh, it would be difficult to find a, a justification to intervene. Um, there may be some sort of common law necessity that could be provided for in some cases. Uh, sometimes police uh, create, you rely on public order offences mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. But there's a, there's a rather messy gap there, yeah. uh, giving the authorities power to make uh, emergency interventions in the case of suicide where there isn't actually a, a mental disorder. And now you do write about this in this chapter. Um, so children and suicide, it's a really, really distressing sort of area and really distressing thing to even think about. How do these cases differ from adult cases? Um, well, I suppose they, they, they differ in, I suppose, Two, two ways. Um, so, so one is, I suppose, the questions of capacity will, will normally be much less often raised. Um, and so it's widely accepted in such a case to sort of rely on, on autonomy, particularly with a younger child, uh, is, is clearly incorrect. Um, but secondly, I think it's just such a powerful example of the way society uh, has put in place um, um, or has allowed uh, children to be treated and to have experiences which cause suicidal feelings. Uh, and it just seems so clear there that those are failings of society that so many of our children are feeling suicidal. Um, and of course, that's that's true, I think, for, for adults uh, just, just as much. But it just seems unarguable. The rates of suicidality amongst children is uh, an awful indictment on the way our society treats childhood. Yeah, um, it's it's quite a tragic thing. Moving on to the next chapter, can you? We've talked quite a lot about the case in favour of protecting against suicide or protecting from suicide, I should say. What are the arguments for you know allowing someone to commit suicide, sort of in the reverse? Yeah. So. And I think those would go to autonomy. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there would perhaps be two lines of argument. So one would one would be based on autonomy that this is this individual's life, uh, and if they want to end their life, it should be their choice, and we simply have to respect it. Uh, who knows better than the person themselves as to what's best for them? So that would be one argument. And I think the second argument was that there might be some cases where actually the ending of the life is better, that if someone is facing unbearable pain, um, that it might be actually not just their choice, but a, a good choice to make uh, to end their life rather than face that pain. Um, so I think those would be the two main arguments that would be used. So I think that sort of fits in to the sort of penultimate chapter about euthanasia and suicide. And this is the one, um, you know, that we do hear a lot about and the sort of stereotypes that you've touched on um, previously regarding, you know, someone ending their life by going to Switzerland. Um, you know, these are the sort of 
ideas that we have. Can you tell me about the current debates on assisted dying and how this fits into your arguments with regards to protecting protecting from suicide? Yeah, so a, a lot of the supporters of euthanasia or assisted dying uh, will emphasize this uh, autonomy argument uh, and even claim that there is a right to die, uh, that if somebody wants to die, we must respect their wishes, that that is their autonomous decision. Um, and indeed that we should put into place, if necessary, facilities that enable or assist them uh, to commit suicide. Uh, now, those who make that case always then go on to carefully explain that they want to limit access to euthanasia or assisted dying to those who have clearly made the choice to do so. Um, and so we put in place safety measures such as spending time with a counsellor and uh, having full understanding of their medical condition and that and those kind of views. Um, now, my, my concern, though, is the emphasis that tends to be put on these debates in terms of the right to the, the right to die uh, and the right to end your life. Uh, and that seems to me not to be the right message that we would be sending. Maybe it is the right uh, kind of language for that particular narrow band of cases. But I think it's very dangerous to accept it as some sort of general societal provision. We, we do not want to say to the student who's overwhelmed with pressure, oh, well, you have the right to die if you want, or to the man whose partner has just left him, well, you have the right to die if you want. And, uh, and we see that tragically in uh, several press reports recently of people standing on high buildings and uh, almost being urged by the crowd below to to jump or uh, being told you know you want to do it and, and things like that really quite astonishing attitudes that are being expressed but i think the response of the law when we're thinking what how should the law respond to a case where somebody wants to die saying you have the right to die is completely the wrong starting point our starting point must be what can we do to change your mind? What support do you need? What services do you need? Um, how, uh, and for us to consider how could we have avoided this person getting into the first, uh, that situation in the first place? And that should always be our primary response. Um, now, I'm not someone actually who's completely and utterly opposed to, uh, to euthanasia. I think there are very, very rare cases where uh, this can be appropriate. Tony Nicholson seems to me to be a case where he had really thought this through in a very richly autonomous way, fully understanding the situation that he was in, uh, facing uh, many years uh, continuing in this condition he found unbearable. But I think we need to find a legal language that would capture the idea that this is something very exceptional, that there might be rare cases when this might be appropriate, but generally that is not the right response to someone who is expressing suicidal feelings. Um, so I think probably within our current legal framework, the defense of necessity captures that quite well. Um, so uh, the defense of necessity would say it is still, uh, uh, it is always a, a, a crime to help someone commit suicide. That's normally not what we're wanting to do. But there might be exceptional scenarios where it is the right thing to do. Uh, so just as uh, very exceptionally the law will recognise it might be the right thing to kill someone to save many people in particular scenarios. Similarly here, it might be uh, in uh, an unusual case uh, that the, the right thing to do is to uh, assist someone uh, in their suicide. But we need to make it clear that's that's not the normal response. That's not the standard response. The standard response is we want to do everything we can uh, to stop suicide uh, and to reduce the number of suicides to as low as we can. I think in this part of the book, one thing that helped me a lot to understand this argument was that you talked about some of the hard cases in this area. Mm. Um, I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about the hard cases and why you know this is such a sort of tricky area and it's these you know the language could be reformulated to show that these are sort of rare and exceptional cases where there a right to die might be protected yes um so the, the vast majority of uh suicides i think 
the the correct response, as I've said earlier, is to be offering uh, quite a range of services, which will be uh, will depend very much on the individual involved, but may well involve counselling and mental health support, may involve very practical support. Um, but uh, the uh, the difficult cases, I suppose, are those where whatever help uh, might be provided, it seems the individual's suicidality will not go away. So with someone who has got a persistent long-term depression, that despite all of the efforts to provide medication or other forms of intervention, uh, have not relieved uh, the person uh, of uh, their suicidality. Um, and so that was the kind of situation uh, Tony Nicholson found himself in. Um, and, and that's where it may be, despite all our efforts, the uh, uh, acceding to the suicidal wish is, is, is the only response. But that will be rare. There will be many, many cases, and we know there are many cases of people who perhaps have been diagnosed with some awful condition whose initial response is, oh, I want to end my life, I can't face this. But then gradually they've come to terms with the decision, they've become more familiar with actually what it involves and all of the good things they can still do uh, despite the condition that they've got. And, 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 and many, many people then will, will change their minds. Uh, and similarly with, with depression, that there might be feelings of suicidality, but with more effective interventions, um, those uh, subside. Um, but yes, the difficult cases are those where despite all interventions and everything we, we seek to do, there's uh, no, no change in uh, their feelings. And so bringing the book to a close, you write that this book has claimed that our starting point is mistaken. The primary right in this context should be prevention of suicide. The vast majority of suicides are not people who are driven by careful, autonomous decisions. They are not making a grand, st grand statement about the meaning of their lives. They are not finding dignity at the end of their life. Rather, they are tragic, bitter, prosaic acts to which horror, shock and deep sadness are the only appropriate reactions. Can you sort of sum up the book and elaborate on this statement? Yeah, so I think... Uh... Many philosophers who have written, particularly those who have written in favour of a right to die, uh, write in rather grand terms about how somebody's decision to uh, end their life and not go through a time of, as they call it, indignity uh, or suffering uh, is uh, the grand final statement in their lives, uh, that uh, this should be the closing statement, that they end their lives when they still have their uh, faculties uh, with them. Uh, as they as they put it, um, and they seem to postulate perhaps a philosopher sitting in their study carefully and weighing up all of the options and deciding right this is the decision I should make. But that's a very far cry from the vast majority of suicides, which which are not the product of a long term decision that someone's made respecting their deep values. It's a cry of despair. Uh, somebody who feels. Uh, utterly desperate and can see no way out. Uh, just uh, some short-term feeling that 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 someone has, um, and so postulating it in the terms of a grand decision that's made, a statement to the world, uh, is simply a mischaracterization of what is often uh, a greatly tragic event, um, or when someone attempts to commit suicide but survives, they're extraordinarily grateful that they didn't achieve uh, what they'd been trying to do at that particular moment in time. Uh, and, of course, we, we hope that they, they come to refind uh, many of the things in their life that, that gave their lives value and meaning to them. Yeah, and I think that's sort of a good way to bring it to a close and reflect upon the book. Um, it's a good sort of takeaway. So, Jonathan, I've taken up a lot of your time. Just before you go, can you tell me a little bit about what you're working on now? Um, well, you, you might hope I was going to work on something more cheerful, but um, uh, do, do writing a book on violence against women uh, and another book on femicide. Um, so, of course, two, two linked themes there. Um, but we'll be, be drawing together other writings I've done to look at yet another major societal problem that we have. Hmm. Well, I mean, I'm sure they will, um, they'll be very interesting and hopefully we can have you back again to talk about one or both of those books. That would be lovely. Great. 
Um, so thank you, everybody, for listening. This is the New Books Network. Uh, the channel you've been listening to is New Books in Law. I'm Jane Richards, and I've been speaking today with Jonathan Herring about his book, The Right to be Protected from Committing Suicide. Jonathan, thank you for your time. Thank you very much.